You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Walsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5. Man, I love to worship with you. I appreciate being with you week in and week out. It's the best day of the week for me. Um, Some of you uh, are really helpful at times, more than others, uh, this past week. Um, Well, that doesn't mean some of you aren't helpful, but um, Michael Nero, who's not even here to defend himself this morning, as some of you may know, he is like our resident uh, Philadelphia Eagles fan, one of the few. Uh, I realize most of you stay in hiding. I get it. Okay. He, in an attempt to be very gracious and helpful, uh, sent me a text yesterday with 16 verses about eagles (laughs) and stated, in case you were looking for something to preach on tomorrow... So I thought, well, maybe the Lord is, is leading through Michael. And so I looked over the list, and I landed on Obadiah chapter 1, verse number 4. It says this, hear the word of the Lord. Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. <laughs> Thank you, Michael, for your help. Oh. Hey, while we, before we get to Galatians chapter 5, let me, uh, in all seriousness, uh, remind you of the importance of your giving. I was reminded of this this past week. I was listening to a uh, podcast that I listen to regularly about our Southern Baptist family of churches, and I know we've got our issues and our weird cousins and all that kind of stuff, but uh, there's a, a lot that God is doing uh, through our network of churches, and I uh, heard uh, on SBC this week Uh, that in the past couple of weeks, over a half a million people have been fed through our disaster relief units in Florida, just in those couple of weeks. And so I share that with you because that your giving makes that possible. Uh, When you give uh, to the general fund of First Baptist Church of Van Austin, that not only goes to uh, carry on the work here locally and to pay the expenses of keeping the lights on and all those sorts of things, a portion of that goes to missions, uh, even in your general giving Uh, general fund giving. And so I also know that uh, we emphasize three missions offerings throughout the year. We are kind of wrapping up our emphasis on our state missions offering, the the Reach Texas offering. And uh, by the grace of God, we've exceeded our goal on that. Uh, We will very soon start emphasizing the Annie Armstrong, I mean, the uh, Lottie Moon Christmas offering. I never keep all those ladies straight. Uh, The Lottie Moon Christmas offering, which uh, 100% of that offering goes to our International Mission Board missionaries and partners around the world. And then in the spring uh, with Easter, we emphasize the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. So when you give and designate to missions, uh, if you don't designate specifically to that particular missions offering... Uh, then that giving will go to the next missions offering. So fairly soon we'll wrap up all of uh, our giving to the Reach Texas offering and we'll send that uh, to the Southern Baptist of Texas Convention for it to get into kingdom work as quickly as possible. And so thank you, thank you for your giving. I know many of you, uh, you prefer to give physically and there is a box in the foyer where you can uh, drop your offering each week. You can certainly give online, which the majority of you do, but uh, your giving is so, so important. And thank you for that. And also... Uh, I want to remind you, when you look at that board over there, that does not mean that uh, our new uh, building is fully financed yet. Uh, It's really important that we continue to give to the Joshua Project. Uh, Those of you who made a three-year commitment, uh, that three-year mark is, I think, this month. And so 
Uh, what we're planning to do in our family is to just continue giving that same amount that we had committed to over the last three years. It's kind of become a part of our budget, and that is above and beyond our regular tithes and offerings, and I might encourage you to pray about doing uh, something like that as well. Well, Galatians chapter 5 this morning. We are working our way through uh, the book of Galatians. This letter is a passionate plea from the Apostle Paul uh, to the churches in Galatia to persuade them to abandon this desire uh, to follow false teachers, Judaizers, who were trying to convince them to adopt a pseudo-gospel, a false gospel of Jesus plus legalism. Understand, humanity fell into its current sinful, helpless condition by listening to false teaching. It was the serpent in the garden who said to Eve, you will not surely die. That is false teaching. Genesis chapter 3, many times since then, Satan has attacked God's people with half-truths that threaten to turn people away from the faith. Uh, You go back even to Deuteronomy chapter 13, and we have a warning there in the strongest terms of false prophets who will lead God's people to idolatry, a warning that has been ignored throughout human history. And then in the same way, the New Testament epistles filled with warnings against the corrupting influence of false teachers. You look at Uh, For example, 2 Peter chapters 1 and 2 gives you a clear distinction there between authentic biblical teachers and false teachers and and, and what distinguishes the two. So throughout the story of redemption in Scripture, one of the chief battlegrounds of God's people has been in the content of the ongoing teaching among them. Uh, It is why we stress regularly here that we desire, are striving to be faithful in the fact that we are biblically based, Christ-centered, and gospel-driven. Christians wage war against Satan by working to remain faithful to the true gospel proclaimed in Scripture. Now, in the previous chapter, we noted that true freedom is the freedom of being a child of God. That, that is an incredible gift that we have uh, as God's people. Uh, The freedom that we have in in Christ as children of God can only be experienced by those who are born through promise. If you remember the the last part of chapter 4 last week, in contrast, those who live according to the flesh, who are self-reliant and seek to be independent, they cannot know what it is to be truly spiritually free because all effort that they expend to be good enough, to add to what Jesus Christ has already done is slavery to their desire to become happy and, in many cases, their fear of suffering. So the promise of grace that gives a new believer, a believer new birth, is what liberates. That's the freedom we're talking about here. The new believer, now a child of God, has everything already in Christ. Now this week's text actually begins with a call To stand firm. To stand firm in our freedom. Paul has already identified freedom with being able to truly, uh, to say truly and confidently that we are children of God. And so let's look at what he writes here in Galatians chapter 5. We're going to look at the first 15 verses together this morning. I hope that you'll follow along as I read. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, 
I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Uh, if you've ever been to a track meet, you have probably uh, witnessed an inexperienced distance runner, especially uh, at uh, sub-varsity levels, for example. Uh, you'll see an inexperienced distance runner who doesn't understand the importance of pace, pretty important in a distance race, isn't it? They seem to start out great and many times take an early lead and you think, wow, look at that. But eventually that runner fades into the back of the pack because they couldn't sustain the pace, that pace over a long distance. The Galatians seem to be like that. Paul illustrates their failure to keep running till the end by saying, you were running well. You seem to start off well. What hindered you from obeying the truth, he says here in verse number 7. So the Galatians, they, they seem to start out terrific, but they, they tanked. It reminds us of what the writer of Hebrews says when he says, that, let us lay aside the weight and the sin which, which weighs us down in this race that we call the Christian life. Uh, anything like that can hinder us, and, and there's something else that can hinder us as well. That's what Paul is getting at here, and that is false teaching. False teaching that would pull us aside and, and, and convince us that, that it's Jesus plus something else. It's Jesus plus my best efforts or Jesus plus your best efforts. So he says, don't be weighed down by these things. That was the case of the Galatians. And so Paul continues here in chapter 5 to give us some clear instruction on how to run the race of the Christian life. And I want you to notice, first of all, he says, run in freedom. Run in freedom. And one commentator said it this way, if Galatians is the Magna Carta of Christian liberty, then verse number one here of chapter five should be considered one of the key verses of this epistle. It's certainly one of the verses that is worth highlighting in the book of Galatians. Live free. For freedom he has done this, Paul writes. Now, he has not set you free for slavery to your old idols, as he wrote last week. This sentence functions as a transition between the last section and what now follows. So Paul just discussed in chapters 3 and 4 freedom. 
Instead of living as sons, they were reverting to slavery to idols, to the law, to the elementary principles of the world. And so, remember last week, Paul illustrates with Isaac and Ishmael to teach us that that, that we are children of the free, of promise, walking miracles, born of the Spirit. And in light of all this, Paul says, don't submit to slavery. That's strong language. And what follows is more on freedom. Notice the end of this section. In verse number 13, he says, You were called to freedom, brothers. You pair that with with verse number 1 here, kind of the bookends of this section. Christ has set us free. Christ is our liberator. And many of you are currently engaged in a study of the book of Exodus in our our, uh, Bible studies. The Exodus is an amazing picture of how Christ has delivered us. Jesus liberated us, not not from Egypt, but from sin's awful slavery and has brought us into his kingdom. And that's why in John's Gospel, chapter 8, we read, If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. And so Paul is writing in light of this great gospel truth, run in freedom, run in freedom. One of the many reasons that people do not walk in a healthy relationship with God is they have forgotten how terrible slavery was. The gospel is not awesome unless you see the awfulness of your previous condition. Unless you remember that. Thomas Watson said, if, until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. So to understand freedom, think about it like this. As believers, we are freed. We're justified. We we looked at that word already in our study of Galatians. It's It's a technical term. It's actually a legal term. We're freed from the guilt of sin, made just as if I'd never sinned. But we struggle to be free experientially, daily, from the grip of sin. Scripture says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You are free from the penalty of sin. That's justification. We we, we don't have to, to live with this sense that we are not acceptable to God, so we rejoice in that. But experientially, experientially, we need to learn how to live free from the power and the grip of sin. We call that sanctification. Gerhard Ford said it this way, and I love this quote, Sanctification is the art of getting used to your justification. It's like the slave who's been freed and unshackled and and, and living in the realization that I can come and go as I please now. I'm no longer shackled. I'm no longer bound. I'm no longer a slave. Have you seen these interesting studies that they do even with animals that have been kept in some form of captivity, maybe tethered to a, a stake or something like that? And when they remove uh, th- that restraint, they, they still live as if they're restrained. I mean, it's one of the things that they do to kind of to control elephants even. I mean, a, a creature that massive, that strong. It's because in their minds, they're still living as if they're enslaved in many cases. That's the way a lot of people are today. Ultimately, we will be free, and I so look forward to this day, from the very presence of sin. We call that glorification. The struggle is this. Do you believe that you are free objectively and are overcoming progressively the power of sin subjectively in your daily living? The Galatians were not walking in this truth. They believed that they needed to contribute to their final salvation. 
They were basically practicing self-atonement by believing that the gospel was Jesus plus something else. So subjectively, some of you this morning may be failing to rely on God's power to overcome the grip of sin. Paul writes to the Romans and says, Do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Do not let sin reign. That that implies that it doesn't have to reign. It doesn't have to control us. We we can't declare, if we're intellectually honest and and biblically accurate, we can't declare that the devil made me do it. (laughs) The devil can't make you do anything. He doesn't have that kind of authority. So don't, don't, don't use that as an excuse. No, God has given us everything that we need to live godly lives. So don't live this defeated life as if you're somehow still shackled in in your chains of slavery. Don't submit again, Paul says here, to the yoke of slavery. The default mode of the human heart is self-justification. Legalism. Someone said it this way, every child is a Pharisee in the making. And so what we do as parents is we must teach the gospel, which is counterintuitive to that. And we say, you can't. I can't, but Jesus did. I can't, you can't, but Jesus did. Give them grace. Give them Galatians. Galatians is like a lion that eats up legalists. Some think that if you teach freedom in Jesus Christ, no one will want to serve him. It's actually the opposite. You see, when you love Christ the liberator, it is a pleasure to serve him. It's a pleasure to serve him. So, so Paul here is basically being clear. It, it baffles me that you would choose to return to this slavery. Many of you are aware that I, I'm a diabetic. In fact, October uh, is my diversary month. Um, that's, that's like the month that you, I guess, celebrate. I don't know if I would really call it celebrate, but uh, you mark uh, the anniversary of when you were diagnosed with diabetes. I was diagnosed at the age of 30 in 1996 with type 1 um, insulin-dependent diabetes. And so many of you are aware that I, I wear an insulin pump. Okay, this little thing right here keeps me alive. Um, and so it stays tethered to me literally 24-7. I disconnect briefly while I shower. Uh, I can disconnect for a brief period of time uh, when I do maybe other things, whatever. But, but very, very seldom is this thing ever detached from me. Okay, it is my pancreas, essentially, and so it is giving me uh, a little bit of insulin right now, even as I preach to you, okay, and then I use it to, to cover my meals and all those sorts of things. Can you imagine if next week word came out from, from the American Medical Association or whatever that there has been a, a, a cure for diabetes discovered? There's now a cure. There's no cure right now. It's treatable. And I'm thankful that it is. I'm thankful for those who, who discovered or, you know, insulin and, and, the, and the treatment that we have. And, and, and so if I, if I do celebrate anything in October every year, it's the fact that God has sustained me and, and that I'm living a reasonably healthy life and I'm, I'm not limited very much in, in what I can do and all those kinds of things. But I guarantee you, if, if they told us next week that there was a cure that I could take advantage of and I could get rid of this thing, I would do it in a heartbeat. Okay, sometimes it is limiting. The supplies and all that goes along with it can be rather costly, even with insurance. And so there are a lot of things about it that, 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 that are not fun. And while it's very much become a part of my life, I would gladly get rid of it. So how ridiculous would it be for me, after a cure has been developed, for me to say, you know what, I think I want to just keep wearing that insulin pump. 
I want to keep living that life of, of certain limitations and things of that nature. I want to always be consumed with, with what my blood sugar readings are and, and why am I feeling this way and why am I feeling that way and, and, and can I eat this, can I not eat this, should I eat more, should I not eat more. It's all these things that, that accompany the life of a diabetic. Why in the world, if I didn't have to, would I want to return to that? I wouldn't. I would say, free me from that thing. Free me. In fact, they, they interviewed a, a number of diabetics a few years ago and asked them, if you could live for one day without diabetes, what would you do? And you would think that most of them would say, well, I'd eat a cake. Right? That's not what they said. You know what most of them said? I would go somewhere off the grid. Because one of the things that often consumes a diabetic who's depending on technology like this is knowing that you have connectivity. Knowing that you have connectivity. And so these people said, I would live with the freedom of not being tethered to some kind of a device. That's what I would want. And so Paul is saying here, why? Why in the world would you choose to return to a yoke of slavery, of self-righteousness and and self-atonement? Run in the freedom that is yours in Christ Jesus. Number two, he says, run in the truth. And really from verse 2 through verse 12, this is what he is stressing. He's confronting these false teachers, and he sustains his argument pretty, pretty steadily until verse 12, which if you were paying attention a moment ago, you know he ends there with a bang, right? That's a, that's a pretty, uh, pretty, uh, pretty significant verse of Scripture. Again, the big issue is adding anything to the redemptive work of Christ for salvation. So for Paul, circumcision symbolized the religion of human achievement instead of divine grace. It was slavery. And so what I want us to do in this section is I want us to to note from the text five results of their false message and five characteristics of the false messengers themselves. And so while we may not be struggling with the exact same issue of circumcision in our day... There are certainly some things in our day uh, that, that can fall in this same kind of category. Let's look at it together. Five disastrous results of the message of bondage. Number one, Christ is viewed as insufficient. Christ is viewed as insufficient. If you feel the need to add anything, add anything to your salvation, you're like, yes, it's Jesus. Yes, I believe in Jesus. Jesus is awesome. I love what Jesus did on the cross for me and all that stuff. And so if I take Jesus, put Jesus in my portfolio, and then I do the best I can and I add my best efforts to that, what you are fundamentally saying there is Christ is not sufficient. That Jesus somehow in his redemptive work needs my help. That's, that's legalism. That's that's what Paul is getting at here. He is saying, if if that's what you're going to do, if you're going to return to this yoke of slavery, you are saying Christ is not sufficient. He's not enough. Calvin said it this way, whoever wants half of Christ loses the whole. You can't add to it or improve on it. To add to anything, to add to anything that Christ has done on our behalf is to have a diluted, polluted gospel. Number two, you have to obey all the law. That's a disastrous result in the message of bondage here. So again, Paul is addressing this ritual of circumcision. He carried a a further all-encompassing obligation, observing the law in every precept. In other words, Paul is saying, you guys can't cherry-pick. You can't pick and choose the things that that, that you want to do. He's saying they had this, uh, what was called a policy of gradualism. You start with this, 
And then you would do more observance of the ceremonial law. And so Paul said in chapter 3, verse number 10, here's the thing about the law. You can't keep it. You can't do it. Remember, it's the law that is like that MRI that reveals to us the treatment that we need. And that treatment is God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Number three, you fall away from the doctrine of grace. Now, some people would use this text as a proof text that you can lose your salvation, but that's not what Paul is saying here at all. We know this based on other texts. We use the comparative mention principle, but more specifically and precisely based on the context here. So Paul is talking about the doctrine of grace. If you believe salvation is by the law, you have abandoned the belief that salvation is by grace. He says you can't have it both ways. Either salvation is by divine accomplishment, Christ died for our sins, or it is by human achievement, your good works. Can't have it both ways. So to return to this yoke of slavery is to fall away from the doctrine of grace. Number four, you lose the hope of our future salvation. So again, righteousness is ours now. But we await our glorification with Jesus Christ. Declared righteous, but our righteousness is hidden from the world. It will be unveiled, Scripture says, on the last day. On that day, it will be undeniable. How do we get that hope? By grace, through faith in Christ alone. The song says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That keeps us running in the truth. Christ is the end of your journey, Samuel Rutherford said. There is no fear. You are going to a friend. You may look death in the face with joy. And then finally, their teaching is empty. He says here clearly, circumcision doesn't count for anything. And he understood it as well as anybody. I mean, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, right? That was his story. And if you look further into Galatians chapter 6, where we'll be over the next few weeks, Paul says it's about a new creation. What does count? Faith working through love. Not faith plus love, but real faith demonstrated with love. Love is the fruit of faith. And so Paul expands on this concept more in verses 13 through 15. And then later you'll see in verse 22, those who do not manifest love show that they have never become a new creation. False teachers, all about the external ritual. But Paul says the Christian life is about faith that is demonstrated through love. So there are the five disastrous results of this teaching of bondage. But as we finish out this section here, I want us to see five characteristics of false teachers of this bondage. Number one, in verse 7, he says they hinder obedience to the truth. Notice again, he says, you were running well. What hindered you from obeying the truth? What hindered you was these false teachers, these Judaizers who came along and said, hey, check this out, guys. Yeah, you're Jesus. That's all good and well. But you got to add this to what Jesus did. you got to add Jesus. They hinder obedience to the truth. Number two, they are not of God. Notice what he says in verse 8. He says, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. We know that, that, that they are not sent by God because they are teaching salvation by Jesus plus the law, plus circumcision. I don't care if they tell you they're sent from God. 
If what they're teaching isn't consistent with the word of God, Paul says, let them be eternally condemned. Remember that from Galatians chapter 1? They're not of God. Number three, they contaminate others. They contaminate others. Look at verse 9. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. False teachers, he says, are like leaven. Yeast that permeates the whole lump of dough makes it rise. In the New Testament, leaven is a symbol of permeating sin and false doctrine. That's why we read in Matthew chapter 16, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Number four, they will be judged. Notice verse 10. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Paul knew that if the Galatians were really of Christ, Satan couldn't ultimately prevail. And so he writes there in the last part of verse 10, as for the false teacher, he'll face judgment. He'll face judgment. It's one of the things, when I, when I knew that God was calling me to pastoral ministry in any form, one of the things that scared me to death is because I knew I would be held accountable for how I handle his word. That, that can be an overwhelming thought sometimes. I mean, it's not like I'm standing up here every week and just kind of giving my opinion on some stuff, right? No, I, I'm supposed to be, be a workman who's not ashamed, who can rightly divide the word of truth with you. This is God's word. We're not talking about the book report that I you know, had to do back in the eighth grade. I mean, we're talking about God's very word. And I will, I, will, I will be held accountable by Almighty God for I've handled this book. And so Paul is saying here, these false teachers, they will be judged. They will be judged. Number five, they persecute true teachers. So Paul is being persecuted because he is preaching the gospel. I'm in the last few chapters of Acts in my personal Bible reading right now. And in that section, you see Paul. I mean, he's being brought before the magistrates and all these things. And the, what was the big issue? He's preaching this whole weird concept of a resurrection. <laughs> the gospel. That, that was the fundamental issue. That's why the, the, the Jewish leaders had issues with the Apostle Paul. You would think that to preach something that is available to all and is totally free would be accepted by people, but it's not. Why then? Paul was being persecuted for one simple reason. The cross offends people. The cross offends people. People would rather you make much of them and preach a salvation by works than to stand up and brag on Jesus and the cross and point people to him as the only way. So the cross, Scripture tells us, is either a stumbling block or it is the power of God, according to Paul's writing in, in Corinthians. You either boast in it or you mock it and reject its power. You say, well, why, why does it offend? Why does the cross offend? Pride. The cross crushes human pride. It obliterates the religion of human achievement because it says, as Christ cried from the cross himself, it is finished. The work is done. And so for this crowd, particularly, that Paul is writing to, it wiped out the idea that they were saved by keeping the Mosaic law. They found that offensive. So in verse 12, Paul says, if you think that you're holy by circumcision, I wish they'd go all the way. It's like, woo, 
You think Paul is passionate about this subject? You better believe he is. The gospel meant everything to Paul. Even to the point that he said in his other writing, in other places, he says, all my self-righteousness, all the things that I held there, I count all that stuff as dung. As dung. For the sake of the gospel. Run in the truth of the gospel, Paul is saying here. And then number three, run in love and service. Two things Paul wants us to avoid about Christian freedom. One is rather obvious here, legalism. Remember, we define legalism as working in our own power according to our own rules in order to earn acceptance before God. He wants us to avoid that. He also wants us to avoid what's called license. Legalism and license. License is thinking that freedom means living however we want apart from a moral compass or a a moral standard. So Paul addresses the, the temptation to license here now. And he talks about the moral law really in a positive sense. Paul shows that freedom from the law does not do away with the obligations of moral conduct and holy living. Rather, justified people are now free to do what Christ wants. We see this on display all the time in the great country in which we live, right? People have a, a, a misunderstanding of freedom. You hear people say, I live in a free country, I'm free. But we know that that doesn't mean you are free to do whatever you want, whenever you want, to whomever you want, right? No, no, there, there's some limits to that freedom. And so that's, that's essentially what Paul is saying here. This freedom that you have in Christ does not entitle you to just do whatever you want as an opportunity to just feed your fleshly desires. In fact, he ties it very closely to the love that we have for our neighbor, for those around us. There are some things in Scripture that, that we believe uh, are, we, in which we have some freedom. And you'll find that if I was to, to list some of those things on the screen this morning in a room this size, right, there would be a, a variety of opinions on those, on those matters. Okay, Some of you would view it one particular way. Others would view it a different way and all those things. So, so we have some liberty right there, right? But we've also got to be careful that we not use that liberty in a way that does not honor God. That's why he says, be careful in the use of your freedom that you don't become a stumbling block to your neighbor. It's not just about you and your individualism in this case and and the freedom that you have. So you just use it however you want to, no matter who gets offended by that or who. No, he says, beware of this license thing. So he says to be part of of being free from sin slavery is that you are free to love, free to serve. And this freedom represents actually the fulfillment of the Old Testament law of love. So the subject of love continues here. He says, don't live to gratify the desire of the flesh. And we know that the flesh here doesn't refer to that which clothes our bony skeletons, right? No, it's our fallen human nature. So we're prone to wander because of our flesh. Christian freedom is not a freedom to sin. It is a freedom from sin. Christian freedom is a freedom to enjoy serving others, thinking of others more than you think of yourself. That's why in various places, you look over here on this banner. What does it say? Those are our discipleship outcomes. (laughs) We want to love God supremely. And and, and when we love God supremely, then we will love others sacrificially. Sometimes 
That sacrificially means setting aside, even briefly, your Christian freedoms for the sake of others and their walk with the Lord. So love God, love others, and live connected. So that's why he says here, love and serve one another. The word serve that he uses here in verse 13 is actually the word for slave. So it's almost as if Paul essentially says, don't be a slave. He's making that clear, right? But now he says, be a slave. You're free to be a slave. (laughs) It's a paradox. It's as though he said, if you must live in slavery, then here is a form of slavery in which you may safely indulge the slavery of practical love for one another. Imagine him as saying, if you must live under some law, Live under this law. Live under the law of love. That is the law of Christ. This slavery, this law, fueled by the spirit within, it's not imposed by some external authority. No, the call to freedom then is a call to oneness in Christ and to loving service within the believing community. So the liberty of the gospel is not to be exercised in isolated independence. A lot of Christians today, and it's alarming to me, honestly, follow the American way of life more than they follow the Bible. Americans, we love our individuality. We love our autonomy. What that does many times is it leads us to love our anonymity as it relates to church and our faith. But Christianity is about living in community with others. Look what it says here. Christ saved you, liberated you, so that you could be so committed to others that it might even look like slavery. Do not think that you are growing if you aren't in community. Don't be a Christian ninja. Live this out practically. He saved us to love and serve others. So what does that practically mean? We are free from using people. We are free from seeking approval from people. We are free from self. He died so that we may no longer live for ourselves, according to 2 Corinthians 5. We are free to serve people. And we see Jesus perfectly personified that. Scripture tells us even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So he closes by saying, love love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. And this might seem confusing after all the talk about how we can't keep the law for Paul to now say that we should love our neighbor because it is a fulfillment of the law. But it's not. On the one hand, keeping the entire law for your justification is impossible. It's unattainable. We are not under the Mosaic law, but Jesus fulfilled it for us. And so now, as a result of our faith in him, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are free to live out the moral teaching of the law. The Spirit changes us and empowers us to obey God. So understand this, love for God and love for neighbor are inseparable. They are inseparable. The various commands of the law, as they relate to other people, you immediately think of them, right? Do not steal, do not commit adultery, do not all those kind of things. They all are saying, essentially, love your neighbor. <laughs> love your neighbor. And those who are freed from the law are empowered by the Holy Spirit to live this new life of love. Who is my neighbor? Jesus says, you should love anyone in need. Those are your neighbors. Some of you might remember the movie Chariots of Fire. It's about Eric Liddell, a runner 
You remember the line where he says, when I run, I feel his pleasure. When I run, I feel his pleasure. Well, as we consider contemplating what Paul says here in Galatians chapter 5, let's feel his pleasure as we run in the freedom that is ours. What does that look like? It's the pleasure of not being guilty. It is the pleasure of not being enslaved by legalism. It is the pleasure of living by the Spirit and having access to God and being accepted by God. It is the pleasure of knowing the security of our future with God. It's the pleasure of loving and serving one another and our neighbors as ourselves. Paul's saying, you are free to run. Now run. Run in the freedom that you have in Jesus Christ. Run in the truth. Run in love and service for others as you love God and serve him. If we could for just a moment bow our heads and close our eyes this morning. As always, it is my sincere hope and prayer this morning That you have an understanding of what it is to walk in the freedom that we have in Christ. It's not a freedom to do whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want. It's a freedom that can come only through faith in Jesus Christ. It's a freedom from guilt and self righteousness and human effort. Are you walking in that kind of freedom? Because if you're here this morning and you're thinking, somehow, some way, I've got to add to what Jesus has done for me. I've got to be a better person. I've got to be more committed. I've got to, all these good things. If you're adding that in any shape or form to what Jesus Christ has already done for us, you don't fully understand the freedom of the gospel. So I invite you to take a step of faith today. It's a step of faith that says, I can't save myself. I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I can't save myself. Even on my best day, I can't be good enough. So in faith, I cry out to Jesus. Be my Savior and my Lord. You begin to run in freedom run in the truth of the gospel and that allows you to run in love and service for others and you'll view the freedom that you have in Christ in a whole new way it'll be filtered through ultimately your love for the Lord Heavenly Father we thank you for your word today God, I thank you for the great exchange of the gospel that he who had never sinned became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. The beauty of the gospel is that we exchange our sinfulness for Christ's righteousness. The one who paid a debt that we could never pay. Lord, help us to run in freedom. Help us to run in the truth. Help us to run in love and service for others. 
as we strive in every way to honor and glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.